0: That was how to make the elixir of life and holy grail. Next up, I'm
1: a mortal. Your source for all things immortal.
2: My name is Dr. Joseph Giracci. I am a, a mathematician, a medical scientist, a quantum machine learning specialist, and an entrepreneur. Until recently, I was the CEO of Netramark Corp. It just got acquired by a company called Neurosyn. Its ticker symbol is M-E-N-D, MEND. And Netramark, what I've been developing over the last five years, is a unique way to understand patient populations for complex disorders. So stuff like oncology, neuropsychiatry, aging, and things like that. Diseases where, you know, it's difficult to label. So one of the things that I've been focusing on heavily is in developing next generation machine intelligence that can actually help prepare data sets to feed to machine learning. So we use machine intelligence in a very unique way here. We use it to deal with the heterogeneity and understanding the patient populations from the patient level in a very precise way. And then this machine prepares novel data sets and it gets pushed into machine learning. And the other thing we focus on is this cool platform we call Netra AI, which allows you to actually interact with complex patient populations, right? So you can literally augment your ability to understand a disease state with a lot of precision. It's very cool. So I'm also a professor of molecular medicine at Queens University, and I'm also a professor in Augusta University in Georgia, USA. So that's
0: me. Okay, wow, man of many hats, I see. And yeah, we definitely have a few questions coming up, especially on, I think last we spoke, uh, Joe, we talked about your Alzheimer's paper. We did read that. So I do have some questions. But before we get there, given that our podcast is called I'm Immortal, which is a bit of a play on the words immortal, what does the word immortal or immortality mean to you?
2: What it means to me is the ability to choose when to terminate my life. That's what it would mean to me to be immortal, right? Like, am I done? Instead of current situation where we age, we break down, and we have little choice. And, but, you know, there's a benefit to not having a choice, which is, I think you live life more fully, and you're forced to look deeply into the nature of reality and it can drive some very deep spirituality, which is very satisfying. Right? But that aside, it would be nice to choose when I die.
0: Mm, I'm curious, do you think we should all have the choice for when we pass then?
2: I I don't know. I don't know. That's a, it's a great question. I mean, I think where what the right that we should all have is we should be able to reprogram ourselves so that a lot of the stuff that takes people down early gets eliminated maybe that is something that we can all agree upon right no more ridiculous neurodegeneration no more cancer no more like that type of stuff age related disorders you know wasting away i think that i think what we should focus on on that aspect is is aging really well which some people do right? It's one of the things I study, right? We call them super agers, right? And, but I think that making everybody a super I think that's the right. There it is.
1: So Joe, before we jump into everything about AI and your research and whatever else and your company and whatever else we want to talk about, I want to ask about your journey and how you got to where you are. In your intro, you mentioned things such as mathematics, oncology, neurodegenerative disease, physics, artificial intelligence, and I'm sure I could go on and on with some of your help. But where exactly did your journey begin? Where did your interest start?
2: Yeah. So, you know, when I was a kid, I was very, very science oriented. You know, I won some science awards and, but the real place where it took off was when I begged my parents to buy me a computer from Radio Shack when I was 11 and they did. I I got this Coco 2 computer with like 16 K of Ram or something. And, uh, and, it, it was amazing i just i just loved programming this thing but i i wanted to make it intelligent i wanted it to be able to converse with me and so I, I tried to develop my own methods to do that when i was a kid and eventually i had this realization that the only way for a computer to start to emerge any semblance of intelligence is to give it the scaffolding so that you can leave this thing on and it can learn from data. So I had that realization when I was 12. And I remember years later when I was, you know, doing machine learning, I'm like, Hey, this is kind of the stuff I was doing when I was 12. I mean, just a lot less sophisticated, right? I didn't know how to build the proper models and stuff, but I had that paradigm. And, you know, ever since then, I just was just obsessed with mathematics and science. And I ended up, you know, doing math degrees in my undergrad and in my master's, and then during my PhD, I was asked to look at a problem in quantum computation and the US government became interested in one of my proposed solutions. And next thing I knew, I I moved from Canada to the US and lived in Los Angeles and uh, was thinking about, you know, what are the outer limits that are gonna be possible with this next generation of computations, quantum computation. And that's where I got started. And then once I did that work as a PhD student and graduated, I switched to medicine. I did a postdoc in oncology and then another postdoc in in computer science, machine learning for medicine, and then another postdoc in neuropsychiatry. And so that was kind of my journey. I was always just hyper interested in computer science and biology and medicine. And uh, I managed to merge them.
0: Oh, well, so forgive me for prodding further, but I feel like I want to know a little bit more because I know just because you like K nearest or your decision trees doesn't mean you necessarily are really into longevity or aging. So at what point did the concepts of longevity or aging start to go on your radar?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. So what ended up happening was cancer was an amazing place to start all this work because of the absolute complexity of the manifestations of this disease, right? You know, two people, a doctor might say two people have lung cancer, but they can be very different diseases, even though they're in the same tissue. Okay. And we have these names for them, non-small cells, small cell, whatever, etc. That heterogeneity, it inspired me to how do I optimally look at these patient populations to help make good clinical decisions. And then I did the same thing in neuropsychiatry. And then I met, you know, one of my investors at Netramark is the CEO of Juvenescence, And he, you know, introduced me to some applications. Now, at the same time, when I was doing my cancer work with Igor Jurisica at the University of Toronto, there was an aging component So I was like, I I, I was already playing with aging earlier on. I was trying to understand ah, what, what happens during aging. How does this relate to cancer, right? So there's an intimate relationship between aging and cancer. It's true as we get older, there's a higher chance. But it's specifically because some of the machinery that starts to go wrong is pertinent for aging, specifically the accumulation of errors. I can get into it. So I started thinking about this even during my oncology training. And then it was, you know, the CEO of Juvenescence that said, you know, hey, you know, this is what we're doing. Your technology can be very powerful for this because you can literally relabel these complex patient populations. Let the machine label it for us. And then we can use machine learning and so forth. And then we developed the relationship in that front. So that was it. So Greg Bailey, Dr. Greg Bailey. Pulled me back in. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask. What exactly is Netramark? It's a technology company. That truly has. An agnostic. It has a machine intelligence. Like technology in it. That could be used for many things. But we focused on pharma. Because of my background in medicine. And these complex data sets. So essentially what it is. is It's. is, it's a, it's a pharma tech company, essentially, now that allows us to do, to form these minor miracles. This is what we do. We do these, the following things, okay? So a pharma company comes to us and says, we are having trouble understanding this patient population. And can we have access to your technology? And we give them access. And what we do is we put their data set inside of it. And what the machine does is... We, we, we give them this this thing called Netra AI. It's very cool. It accelerates your research by up to a hundred times. Like literally in 14 seconds, this thing can tell you about your, pa- I've seen it do it and it got it exactly right. These patients are gonna respond this way and these patients are gonna respond this way. It was very cool and it did it with very weak labeling. And so what what it does is basically like a data microscope. It allows you to go in, zoom into the patients and say, hey, these people are together because of this reason, and these people are together because of this reason. So in other words, what happens is you give it simple labels. Let's say, for example, these people are responders, these people are non-responders. The machine will shatter even those subtypes into further subtypes. Just because someone's a responder, they can be a responder for different reasons. So that can influence your clinical trial in a major way. So you can actually literally focus it hands you a biomarker that says hey these people have a mechanism of response that matches your drug or whatever right and this can be used for drug response placebo response safety profiling all kinds. so basically it's this Netramark is allowing us to stop relying on these blocky observational names we give to disease and trading them in for mechanistic profiles instead So we have set tools like that. So that's one of our tools. And the other tool literally is used to look, we're having trouble using machine learning because there's something going on with our data set. It's overfitting. And what we do is we allow something we call a shatter. We allow it to pass through our system and it basically creates labels for your data set. It relabels it. And this is the future of AI. Everyone understands we can, you know, if you have good data, you can use AI. It's simple. We now understand the hard part's the data. So that's the part we've been starting to attack, is how do you use intelligence, machine intelligence, to do this really difficult work of partitioning the data in such a way so that a gradient boost or a deep neural network can really do its job. So those are the two things. One is interactive, augmented intelligence. The other one is kind of like a big brother for your machine learning. It's like you want to train a kid to ride a bicycle, you stand next to it, you prepare it. That's what some of our technology, that's what Shatter is doing now.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, now is my opportunity to ask about the Alzheimer's paper, read right? Because once again, this is not like an AI podcast or machine learning. I know you've been on one or two of those. And I think one of the things that I remember you saying was that in the realm of medicine, there are not huge data sets. Like we want thousands, tens of thousands, but really you're getting like, Maybe optimistically a few hundred, probably, right? <laughs> that's optimistic, yes. <laughs> yeah, but I remember in your Alzheimer's paper, the data set was actually pretty small as well, which is not surprising, of course. Over a hundred people,
2: um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right.
0: a few hundred. I'm assuming that more data is always better, but I'm not sure if that's true. I also don't know if there's a minimum amount of data you need. How is it that you're able to get such results from such small data sets in the first place? No, no,
2: It it's a great question. So here it is. This is the way I've been thinking about statistics and machine learning. Statistics is great because you can gather confidence in an observation using statistics. Can I generate a significant p-value and then say, okay, my observation is not just a flu. Okay. So then there's two aspects to machine learning from my perspective. One is the classic one, which is I want to be able to build a model so I can make a prediction about an individual, right? For those of you who can't see, I'm holding up a pen. You show the pen to the AI. It says it's a pen. It learned what a pen is, right? If I hold up a ball and say ball, whatever, right? Okay. So that's prediction. But when you have smaller data sets, you have to be careful because it doesn't gather enough of the distribution of what a pen is what an Alzheimer's patient is, in order to make really accurate predictions. But what you can do is you can extract, you can get the machine to create hypotheses about your data. And what we did is we invented a mathematical paradigm that allows the machine to extract observations from the data that collectively is significant. In other words, it's a hypothesis that you can really go out there and, and test or observe, or you can literally as a human say, that's crap, or that's true. I'll give you an example. So I'll give you an example of a crap and of, of, and something to related to immortality, okay? Crap is, we got a perfect model for diabetes. Perfect, right? So the machine handed this back, two classes, it didn't even make other, it didn't discover anything, it was perfect. Right down to the number, and you know, we asked the machine, "Oh, cool! What variables are you using?" And someone left in a variable called "history of diabetes." <laughs> so, right? so, so, so the you know the AI did its best, and it did perfectly because it it was there, right? And we were like, "Oh, crap! Okay, that's not good, right? Okay." And here's an example of. This is an amazing example. We put in aging data that we have at Netramark. It's basically skin data sampled from a two-year-old up to a 96-year-old. And it's gene expression. So it's genetic, a very special type of genetic data. And we asked the machine a stupid question. Can you separate people who are over 50 from under 50? And what it did was, is it basically created a data set that said, Forget about all of these other people. They're all mixed. But it pulled out this subpopulation. This is the magic, okay? It was able to ignore. It forgot. This is what me and some next generation machine learning people are starting to talk about. Can you get machine to be like a human, to forget, right? To, To ignore the noise. And what it did is it yanked out a group that everybody, pure group of over 50s, where everybody was over 80. Because it was able to recognize some signal that cohered all these people. And no cheating, no internet, no labels. I just gave it a simple label. These people are over 50. These people are under 50. And it said, this is nonsense. Except, look at this hypothesis I just generated. And the p-value of those people coming together by fluke is like 10 to the negative 17. Oh, wow. It's going to allow you to generate a model based on the hypotheses that this thing can make because it knows how to forget. It knows how to say, no, this is nonsense. And this is what's necessary for the whole longevity space because the complexity is astounding when you know, we age in different ways, right? Before
1: I jump into the original question I was going to ask, I wanted to ask, is there a reason you use the word forget rather than filtering out? Is there a significant difference between the two?
2: I think it's some of our desire. It's related to a lot of people in my space and you have to forgive me I'm also a neuroscientist right we anthropomorphize we love our tools and I think but see forgetting is is a very important thing we're starting to refer to this process as forgetting and you're right it is filter it's it's basically saying that ah, this is nonsense but it's it's a forgetting mechanism because what it does is it's forgetting that allows you to relearn and to recapture and not overfit so I use that term Because I want to sound cool, right? Like that's... that's.
1: (laughs) Yeah. As somebody who works in a lab and has been working for quite some time now, I'm always told any data is good data. Bad data is good data. More data is always good. So is more data always good with producing a predictive model? Is having more always necessarily
2: beneficial? Okay, okay. Yeah, so this is a beautiful question. The answer is simple. Yes, more data is better. Okay, but... There's data that's just garbage. It was not collected, right? It's contaminated, right? There's data that comes from machines that changes uh, every hour. We literally had our machine intelligence create a hypothesis about a bunch of MRIs. And the hypothesis was it arranged everybody according to the time that they use their MRI in, in about 72 minute blocks. Because this thing was sliding for some reason or something was wrong. Proteomics, same thing. Right? So you have to be careful. So, yes, but the more data, the better, simply because it's a truth that phenomenon in our universe are distributed. Right? So mathematicians and statisticians get excited about distributions because that they describe the way data is distributed. And if you can figure out very precisely how a distribution is formed or what, what it's made out of, you can make really powerful predictions with that. And so the more data, the, um, the more full, the more complete that picture of the, of the distribution. Unless it's all garbage, then you're not getting anything.
0: <laughs> uh, okay, so before Sufo we'll start asking more questions about data and um, whether it's good or bad or how useful it is, Uh, We did touch on aging and I did want to, I guess, elaborate more on it because when we talk about aging, depending who you ask, some people are very strongly opposed to calling it a disease while other people are much on board for that. Joe, do you think we should define aging as a disease? Is it helpful in any sense?
2: Yes, it's helpful because maybe not a disease. It's a something like a disease. It's a syndrome, right? It's a, it's something we all approach because there's an internal failing. Like, what is dis-ease? <laughs> okay, good point. Right? So, you know, Dr. Joe says, you know, if I put that hat on, it's like, yeah, yeah, you're messed up because something went wrong. You know, something's broken or there's a genetic malfunction or whatever. And what happens is, So, okay, let's look at cancer, okay? Cancer, let's be logical. Cancer is, we accept that cancer is a disease and it causes severe dis-ease. And cancer occurs for various reasons, but at the bottom, it's because there's some sort of genetic malfunction that creates a neoplasm. And often what happens is the apoptotic signal breaks down, which is the suicide signal. So, And that's a very good example, right? So all of the cigarette smokers out there, that's what you're doing to yourself. You're disabling the ability for your cells to commit suicide when they have errors. And so as this error accumulates, you end up with a neoplasm, a tumor. So aging causes the same thing. You end up accumulating a bunch of errors. You end up with senescent cells, which releases chemical signals you don't want you end up accumulating errors on your genes and so forth. So proteins don't get translated properly, right? It's like a radio station going out of tune. So if I come along and I give you a drug that puts you back in tune, right? The music comes back clearly. Then it seems like I've just cured some dis-ease, right? So to me, to me, it's the same thing just because, just because this disease is inevitable doesn't mean it's not a disease. That's the problem, right? It's this inevitability. There's spirituality attached to it, right? There's all that, which is fine. It's great. And it could be the most important aspect of our lives. We don't know that, right? Death might be the most important. We don't know what we are. We're trapped between zero and 100, right? And we can have, you know, spiritual practices and all that that might infer something to you, but. We don't know what we are. But all that aside, it's an accumulation of errors that kills you, if not something else.
1: Related to curing aging or curing aging as a disease, there's kind of two sides to the same coin. One being curing individual diseases that come from aging or are associated with aging. Versus just stopping people from aging altogether. Do you think is one better than the other? And do you think solving all these age-related diseases individually would lead to us stopping our aging
2: process? Yeah. So this question, this is important. So we need to go after age-related diseases first because we can catalog these things. We Even though Alzheimer's is extremely heterogeneous, as you can see from my paper, um, you know, you you we can attack those first they're in your face and they have to be dealt with they're the obvious things right and aging the mechanisms behind aging itself is going to require in my opinion a next generation therapeutic technology like gene editing or something like that right or nanotechnology like for example there's there are companies now experimenting with tiny little vacuums that literally vacuum up toxins from intracellular spaces, the spaces in between your cells, right? And this can change the way we age. I think that the progression is going to be natural I, I, you know, there's certain groups now which are going directly after aging as a mechanism, but I, I think that what we're doing at Netramark has to happen first, which is to create a map of disease. This goes back to your question of what we do. Really, that's what we do. We have, we, we're creating maps of all these complex disorders, whether it's lung cancer or aging or whatever, ALS, right? That's what we're doing. We're creating these maps. And we have to create a proper map of what aging, what aging, there's so many things that can go wrong, right? I believe in going after the individual diseases right now, yes. We might be able to even drug some of these things,
1: right? if I can try to summarize what you said, you think that we need to map out all these individual parts to be able to solve the bigger picture.
2: Yeah.
0: Oh, so I guess to follow up then, given what you learned about Alzheimer's, it, that it's heterogeneous, do you think we're wrong a lot of, about a lot of other age-related diseases, namely that they actually have multiple causes rather than just one?
2: Yes, I do believe that. I believe it's already damaged a lot of the work in this space. Right? Thinking that one drug is going to cure alzheimer's or dementia like mild cognitive impairment or age-related major depression right inflammation is a big part of all this but is it the only part so forth right and so it's it's a mess it's a combinatorial mess
1: So I'll switch gears completely and shift to a topic that's been hot in media and in research for quite some time, which is the idea of personalized medicine. Do you think healthcare where it is today, obviously every region is different, but in general, the level of subgroups that we personalize healthcare to, is that enough? And if not, how far should we be going with personalizing healthcare?
2: Yeah, it's not being utilized properly. And, you know, look, the motivation for doing things the way they are is because, you know, it makes money for certain groups of people, right? Now, precision medicine, I believe, is going to be a critical aspect of the medicine of the future. And it's simply because, you know, one drug does not fit all. And we're not, we're not cutting things up uh, to, a, to a granular enough perspective yet. And I understand pharma companies want to maximize how much money they can make from a drug that they clear, but truly, this process is already happening. It's already happening in cancer, where certain people have to have a, a gene expression over a certain level in order to get the drug, and they throw away a significant part of their market to do this. But they pass the clinical trial, right? So it's starting to happen, and no, we're not we're not utilizing that clearly enough. And digital biomarkers, guys, it, this is going to become a huge part of it. There's going to be things that you're going to be able to collect from your phone and from other, you know, things interacting with an app and so forth. You know, with your with a watch. That in combination, this is going to define your journey, your health journey throughout your life. If we can make this precise enough, this is where I'm starting to move towards, and this is why I'm excited about joining Neuroscenes team, because what we're doing is we're collecting data from uh the app and from other gadgets that the, you know the, the person's wearing and we're merging it with our understanding of disease eventually it's possible that a digital biomarker a person that utilizes this in in the proper way and, and puts in a lot of variables into this we might be able to identify subtypes of diseases that won't happen for years and thereby really helping individuals we can trade this stuff in for genetic information and all that eventually
0: so in terms of the future of healthcare i I feel like i sort of get what you're saying but there's one point specifically i know a lot of people will want me to explicitly ask so i will ask it which is about this fear of ai and all these models taking over the healthcare system because i think right now it's more so where the doctor or the physician they may use these tools to help make a decision but ultimately they're using their medical expertise to make the final call do you see this ever changing where we no longer need physicians? Or will the what we call a physician now? will that role end up changing? What's your thought on that?
2: Yeah, no, no. So so I've learned to never say never,
0: right? Like,
2: I want to say, Oh, no, never, we're always going to want to rely on a, on a human doctor, because the power of a human physician is in their clinical experience. It's not in their creativity. It's not, it's not in, you know, how well they understand physiology, they gather clinical experience. That's why we take our kids, to a physician, we trust them because they have experience. Now, machines are going to probably become smart enough one day to very accurately do this. The point here is cultural, right? How can we convince people to trust it? And is it possible that that these children now, not the millennials, the generation before the millennials, right? Is it possible that their trust in technology, the way they interact constantly, is going to be the driving force behind exactly what you're saying? Right, if you ask you know a guy like me, I'm like no, never. You know, wow, we never you know we're going to try. But if you ask if you ask my daughter, she's going to ask like, yeah, well, how accurate is it? Right? She's become like this like it's become colder for her. Like, yeah, okay, maybe I'll try. So that's why I do not say never. A company is going to probably develop some diagnostic system that's going to be so good, and you know, but it's that's going to take time, 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 time. But it's possible for certain things. I mean, it's you know the issue is data, how we treat the data. I don't know. I don't. I don't know how to answer that question. I don't. I don't know. I'm, <laughs> was, I, you got me thinking too much now. <laughs>
1: That's all right. That's that's the point of our podcast, to get people thinking about these topics. Somehow we got you thinking, so <laughs> accomplishment in my book. <laughs> so since you mentioned the word spirituality, I'll make a very corny transition and ask, have you ever crossed paths with religion in your own life? In our podcast, we've spoken to a lot of, I guess, people who are very knowledgeable in certain religions. And we've talked to them about their ideas between their religion and, or their religious experiences and what they think of immortality. So for you, can you tell us a little bit if you have crossed paths with religion in your life?
2: So I've always, I've always been attracted to Buddhism and Zen and Taoism and Hinduism. Right. And, and I've done quite a bit of study when I was a you know really young man on these topics, and I even had the opportunity in my 30s, young early 30s, to sit with a Buddhist monk for a couple of years when I was living in Los Angeles. And it was a transformative experience. So, you know, I had all of these years of reading and practicing in some sense, you know, all of these different practices, you know, including some, you know, Western mystical traditions. And I was always attracted to it because my perception of science as a child didn't split from my conception of nature or, or God or reality. So it was. this was really me as a kid. I didn't see any difference between God and a tree and science. You know, I was born a pantheist, right? I lived inside of God, so, so to speak. And then it naturally evolved. And then what happened is I, I spent years doing this, you know, Buddhism and yoga and yana yoga, raja yoga, all this stuff, right? And studying Vivekananda and, and you know, whoever else. When I started sitting with that Buddhist monk in Vipassana, I felt like all that scaffolding was torn away, all the scaffolding about God and about these, you know, the naive stuff. And I had an experience where for a few moments I was, there was no ego self. And after passing through that experience, it it altered me. My acceptance of death changed. So... That's the answer. The answer is that I don't want to die. I'm not insane. I still have, right? Like I'm an egomaniac, you know, right? So, but there's an aspect of that experience that bled into how I perceive it. I'm, I'm a lot less stressed about it, right? Because what I what came out of that, if, if I may, is that I, I had this realization that there's one consciousness and that we're split. That this consciousness is split like a fluid amongst vessels. And a lot of our fear about death is just the vessel worrying about breaking and not realizing that the fluid's gonna pour into another vessel. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about death. Right? This is what happens when you're a very curious kid who dives into Eastern mysticism, right? Right? <laughs> you, you end up realizing death is. Death is all religion. I mean, that's, that's we have it because if we're immortal, we'll be like, whatever, we're gods, right? But yeah, we're terrified about what's on the other side. And so, yeah, man, I, I think it, it's been, it's an, it's an extreme, maybe an equal part. You know, people talk about Dr. Joe and all my degrees and all this stuff, but an equal part that's hidden is this, you know, this, this spiritual life where I really, really, really tried to focus on death. I would even read books that were meant for people who were dying. You know, they knew they were going to die Whoa. in six months. Oh, I put myself through those processes when I was quite young. Right? So, yeah, man. I'm immortal. Immortal. Right? So-,
1: <laughs> 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 so, with everything you've learned and everything we've discussed, do you think any of the goals of extending life, ending aging, or trying to become immortal, are they out of line with your own goals visions and goals and, I guess, your own mantras?
2: No, 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 no. It's arrogant to think that you can become this immortal being. But it's arrogant to think that the pursuit of this goal is not really, really worthy. Because in the pursuit of it, we're going to discover things that are going to help multitudes of people. And that's happening already. Right? It's starting to happen. These people that are focused on getting these mice to live seven times their age, we're learning critical things about disease. And it's going to begin to drive therapeutics that go beyond our clumpy drug paradigm. Right, That's one of the great things about Netramark. These maps I'm talking about, if you hand these maps to a genetic engineer of the future, they're going to be like, oh, hey, there's this subtype of ALS that we can just get rid of by just manipulating these Seven genes, right? Boom, done. The nerve retracting from that, from the muscular junction. You can stop it. Right? Now, to me, it's all the same thing. Right? Like, I just want to alleviate suffering. Right. So yeah, man. If if I happen to live to three hundred and seventy, great. You know, like I'll I'll take on you know I'll become a dancer for a while, you know, then I'll become a scientist again, <laughs> and then I'll become whatever. You, you know what I'm saying. So no, no, it doesn't, It. I don't have this, you know, I don't believe that just because I might have a belief that death is extremely important. It doesn't mean we have to live, be trapped between zero and a hundred, right? Maybe 250 would be a good number. Now, I meet people all the time that hate this idea. What they say to me is, I want to be a healthy 85 year old and I want to turn off at 90 and be done. Don't want it anymore, right? That That's the most common thing I hear. And a few people are like, no way I want to live forever. But those people are usually very wealthy, mm. right? Their perception changes about what life is like. Right. Um, that's another, that's a socioeconomic kind of discussion. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. If other people share your sentiments, right. And want to work on problems of aging, I really want to make a difference. I know you're somewhat of a polymath, like a man of the Renaissance involved in so many fields, but it's not asked you for advice. Joe, I'm really interested in this. I want to make a difference. Where should I start? What would you say to them?
2: Yeah, there's multiple paths. So it depends on your predisposition. If you're mathematical, I would recommend that you become a computer scientist with a bioinformatics background, really get to understand machine learning and then dive deeply into biology, right? And then find physicians to work with right and create a company out of those relationships and that experience there if you're not inclined mathematically and you can't dive in at that level just because you don't care but you have it in you to become a medical doctor then go there and then find the people i just described okay this is this is how to do it right not everyone has to be ridiculous like me and spend 30 years in university right like Right, just but but you need to build those bridges. The problem I I was on a call with a massive pharma company yesterday, and they said, oh yeah, we had this meeting, but the, these data scientists didn't want to talk to these other data scientists, and the physicians didn't want to talk to these people, and they all have their own silos. And and Joe, can you come and like talk to everybody? I'm like yeah. So what happens is those silos have to break down. We need the physicians because we trust the physicians to gather data from our family members from patients, right? We need the computer scientists because they're going to be able to do stuff with the data, right? And we need mathematicians because they're going to create novel ways of looking at the world. Mathematicians, physicists, whatever, right? And so this is the thing. So ultimately, I think it's the fusion of, you know, let me be very general. is mathematics, computer science, and medical people, biologists, right? And that's the other way. Some people don't have to be a physician, but they can become a biologist that specializes in how aging occurs. And they work with these people. But I recommend that everybody learn how to program computers, right? Learn how to program R and Python. I'm not talking about you becoming like one of my engineers here who know how to do DevOps and all this ridiculous software engineering stuff, right? But just being able to be competent from that perspective. Even physicians should have that. So at least they understand where things are coming from. That that's what I think. I think we need to stop thinking we're all separate. We're all the same. Like it's, it's science. Mm, it's like that idea of unity. You
1: got to put together the ideas to come up with the result. Huh? Yeah,
2: right. It's unification. I mean, that's how. Like you know, I know people can't see this Rubik's cube, but on on the back of that Rubik's cube, those are Maxwell's equations. Th- this is a miracle. Mm-hmm. This is a unification of electric of electricity and magnetism. And this is where the universe be- opened up. It's in, unifi- it's in unifying things that seem like they're apart, where the magic occurred. So as a theoretical, you know, as a mathematical physicist, this is what really turns me on. Is this is where things become very beautiful.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Joe, if there's one thing you want people to take away from today's conversation, what would it be?
2: It's that they should invest in my company and... No, no. So, It's so, so, <laughs> so that, that the path towards extending life is going to have a lot of effects for other diseases that we care about, right? It's going to affect our, you know, there's implications in psychiatry and there's implications in oncology and there's implications in neurodegeneration, massive. And so I think it's a really great goal to get wrapped up in. I think longevity is an important goal because it, it's like space or it's, it's like the Large Hadron Collider right? like This massively, like, okay, can we figure out, you know, is there the Higgs boson? In order to figure that out, we've had to invent, there had to be advances in metallurgy and in engineering that are going to have effects in other areas like medicine. And this happens over and over. And I think that this massive goal, right? You know, aging X, Right, is is gonna pull us towards a lot of discoveries about ourselves and improve our well being in many ways. Even though we might not hit that thousand year lifespan that some people are talking about now. Maybe we will. Hmm.
0: Well, for people who want to learn more about your work and maybe support it, possibly with dollars, um, how can they do so? Where can where can they go?
2: If if they just Google like Dr. Joseph Girachi Netramark, you'll find me. I'm I'm all over the place. There's pieces been written about me recently. I'm on LinkedIn, right? Look up, you know, Joseph Girachi, Neuroscene, Netramark, right? Neuroscene is this great company that's going to start. We're just starting now to move to the next generation, which I was talking about earlier, which is using digital biomarkers to do all this great stuff we're talking about, which would be great, right? You know, you you. It can it can become in a very affordable way to do precision medicine, you know. When we get there, so you know that's the way they can find me. Yeah. Google me. Perfect. So, for everyone
1: listening, any links such as Nirsin or Netramark will be down in the description below, anything we discussed. And once again, thank you so much, Joseph, for coming on to I'm Immortal, your source for all things immortal. We really appreciate you taking the time and coming to speak with us today.
2: Thank you. It was awesome.